dwell further upon the important question, what do we know about man's ability to limit the omnipotence of God in the moral realm from the Bible? We continue with our second heading, which was, God exercises his great wisdom and employs all possible resources in pleading with men to conform to his wise and holy ways, all without success in the great majority of instances. And so we come to the passage in Joel chapter 2, verses 12 to 14, where we read, Therefore also now saith the Lord, Turn ye even to me with all your heart, and with fasting, and with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your heart, and not your garments, and turn unto the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and repenteth him of the evil, who knoweth if he will return and repent, and leave a blessing behind him. So God is so kind that he stands ready to repent of his purpose of judgment, if man will truly repent of his sins. God therefore is limited in his treatment of man by man's attitude. What a picture of humiliating repentance the prophet Joel set forth. Zechariah in the first chapter and verse 4 likewise admonishes the people in behalf of God to turn to him so that he would not be limited in blessing them. But we read that they heeded not. Be ye not as your fathers, unto whom the former prophets have cried, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Turn ye now from your evil ways and from your evil doings. But they did not hear, nor hearkened unto me, saith the Lord. Coming to the New Testament, we read in John chapter 5 and verse 40, where our Lord Jesus said that he was limited in bestowing life within the hearts of men because of their refusal to have it so. And ye will not come unto me that ye might have life. So although the Lord Jesus Christ ever so much desired to impart to them the blessings which he knew he possessed, yet he was limited in doing this because of their resistance. And in John chapter 7, Verse 17, we read this important thought. If any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. If any man will, this is the crucial question. It is man's will that resists and limits God. In the seventh chapter of the book of Acts, verses 47 to 53, we read about the beloved Stephen before his death march and triumphal entry into glory. There he witnessed as to the intensity of God's efforts to bring the Jewish leaders to recognize the Messiahship of Christ. Howbeit the Most High dwelleth not in temples made with hands, as said the prophets, Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. What house will ye build to me, saith the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Hath not my hands made all these things? Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost, as your fathers did, so do ye. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them which showed before the coming of the Just One, of whom ye have been now the betrayers and murderers. 
who have received the law by the disposition of angels and have not kept it. And so they had raised their powers of resistance against the Holy Spirit and were successful in restraining God's operations. In the book of Galatians, chapter 5 and verses 16 and 17, we read about the Holy Spirit as being resisted in his operations within man's fallen nature. This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh, for the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. But it is we ourselves that have the power to determine the effectiveness and outcome of this forceful influence of the Holy Spirit within our very hearts. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 19, we read the tense admonition, quench not the Spirit, or more accurately, do not keep on quenching the Spirit. This is the word properly relating to the extinguishing of a flame. It indicates that as a general rule, mankind are suppressing, hindering, thwarting, or stifling the operations of the Holy Spirit to promote holiness in their hearts and lives. Thus we see from these many passages that men are limiting the omnipotence of God in the moral realm, that God's great measures of wisdom and kindness have been unsuccessful in promoting holiness and true happiness on earth among the multitude of mankind. This is not a matter of reasoning. It is a revealed fact of the Word of God. We shall soon inquire as to how this state of affairs could come to exist, but here we have been concerned with the fact of its existence. But in the third place, God has expressly revealed his heart and purpose in the matter of man's salvation, that it is his will that all men should repent and be saved, and has accordingly provided an atonement equally for all men. First of all, the great benevolence of the Godhead purposed the salvation of all men. We read in our early life, most of us in John 3:16, that God so loved the world that he gave. And in verse 17, for God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Our Lord Jesus expressed his heart when he taught his disciples to pray. Thy kingdom or thy domain come. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. In the 17th chapter of John, our Lord is praying in his great high priestly prayer that all Christians might be in unity with him with the objective that the whole world might be saved. There we read these words, that they all may be one as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. So it is God's purpose that the entire world of men should be saved. The blessed atonement in the second place was made for every man in the same sense, without any partiality. In the second chapter of Hebrews, we read this conclusive statement concerning the sufferings of our dear blessed Lord. Verse 9, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. 
And again in the second chapter of John's first epistle and verse 2, we read of the propitiation that the Lord made for the sins of the whole world. And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So it is the happy nature of the gospel that the Lord Jesus tasted death equally for all men, thus revealing the purpose of God in the salvation of men. But further, the Holy Spirit enlightens every moral being born with great persuasive evidence of the truth and rightful claims of God. Our Lord Jesus was introduced by the humble servant Simeon as described in Luke chapter 2, verses 27 to 32, that he would be a light to lighten the Gentiles. And in John chapter 1 and verse 7, John the Baptist came to bear witness of Christ. We read that all men through him might believe. And in verse 9, God gives the true moral light to every man, we read. That was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. And in John chapter 12 and verse 46, our Lord Jesus is set forth as the light of the world who shall set forth the real convictions of sin upon all men. In the first chapter of Romans, verse 20, we read that all men are without excuse before God to recognize his eternal power and Godhead from the wonders of God's created universe, which all behold. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so they are without excuse. So the Holy Spirit imparts light to every man, with the purpose that every man shall be saved. The Lord desires and wills the salvation of every individual. We read in the 10th chapter of the book of Acts, verses 34 and 35, that God is perfectly just and impartial toward all men. None are chosen to a place of special privilege. Then Peter opened his mouth and said, Of a truth I perceive that God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. In the 33rd chapter of Ezekiel and verse 11, God pleads with all rebellious and disobedient men to turn to him and live. This is just one of the many passages that we might so read. Say unto them, As I live, saith the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways, for why will ye die, O house of Israel? Turning over to 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verses 3 and 4, we are expressly told that God wills the salvation of all and that the persistent refusal of men to respond to his kindness and mercy limits his power and his will. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Notice if men are going to be saved, there is no magic process. They must come to the knowledge of the truth and respond to God's gracious truth. Again in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9, we are told of the will and the earnest sincerity of God 
that all should be saved. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so with long-suffering and great patience, God exerts his power to bring to pass the salvation of every man. Man's refusal to take the necessary step of repentance brings to naught and resists the will of God. Thus we see that man possesses the ability to limit the omnipotence of God. The Bible simply reveals what is everywhere evident, that the will of God is not being done on earth, that while God is pictured as exerting every possible effort consistent with man's freedom and moral accountability, by and large the multitude of men press on in their selfish ways. Man cannot be forced to obedience, and thus mere omnipotence cannot preserve the world from the presence and tragedy of sin. Our Heavenly Father, as we close this inquiry, we are painfully conscious of the existence of sin in the world. We are painfully conscious of sin having existed in our own life. But we thank Thee for Thy invitations of mercy, that all is not without hope, that we are invited to repent of our sins, to turn from those things that are offensive to Thy great and loving heart, to come to Thee in faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and His death, thereby being forgiven freely by Thy grace, going on to serve Thee with a happy, free conscience in this life and in the world to come where Jesus has gone to prepare a place for those who have come to Him, in whose name we pray, amen.